Good morning. It's been a good week. Vacation Bible School was really fun. I'm so grateful for all of the, the amazing volunteers, parents, um, kids that helped make it happen. It was a lot of fun. This uh, week we're finishing um, a sermon series that we started about a month ago, the end of June. It's a sermon series on relationships and what the Sermon on the Mount can teach us about how we get along with one another. So today's text is in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to get to that in just a minute, but if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to find that, Matthew chapter 6 in there. I do not have text on the screen for you, unfortunately, this morning. So pull out your smartphone, get version going. There's a, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have one, but Matthew chapter 6 is where we want to be. And before that, I want to tell you about Mike Anderson. Mike Anderson. Maybe you heard the story. I heard it on NPR a couple of years ago, a story about a guy who had a rude awakening one morning. He was sleeping. He was home with his kids in his house. His wife was away on a business trip, and he heard the door uh, being pounded on rather aggressively. It was early. He was still in his pajamas, so he went partway down the stairs and yelled out, you know, who is it? What's going on? And the person on the other side of the door said, it's the U.S. Marshals. Open the door or it's coming down. So he ran down the stairs and opened the door, and he opened it to see an entire street blocked off, cop cars all throughout it, lights on, and many, many weapons pointed at him at his doorway. He saw people in helmets and shields and the whole nine yards. I mean, this was a serious operation, apparently, that was happening while he was sleeping. And he said, what, what are you guys doing? Like, you, you've got the wrong guy. I don't know what you're doing here. And, and the officer who was in charge said, are you Mike Anderson? Yep. Oh, we've got the right guy. Do you remember 13 years ago? And of course, Mike Anderson had remembered 13 years ago. He remembered 13 years ago for his whole life. I mean, ever since it had happened, he had remembered every single one of those years. He had been carrying 13 years ago on his soul all of that time. It had weighed him down and held him back. He remembered 13 years ago. That was when he had, he had been convicted of armed robbery. He was not much over 20 years old at the time. He was caught up with the wrong crowd of people and in a foolish series of decisions ended up holding someone up, a, a business owner who was making a deposit. And, and Mike Anderson got caught. He went to trial. He was convicted. But through a series of really strange clerical errors, he was never summoned to serve his time. In fact, he was marked as being in prison for those 13 years. They had him marked down. The prosecutor at one point in, a, in an appeal hearing just swore, yeah, he's in jail, he's in jail. And, and Mike didn't happen to be at that hearing. He was out at his house somewhere, and, and Mike's attorney thought, well, maybe, maybe he is in jail. And so he, he was marked, recorded as being uh, already imprisoned, and nothing happened. His attorney said, well, you know, they'll, they'll issue a warrant and you'll get picked up and don't, you know, it'll, it'll happen, don't worry about it. But it never 
happened. He was, he was recorded as being in prison. And so at the end of that 13 years, the state of Missouri decided, okay, it's time to release this guy. And they go to their records and they find that this guy is not, in fact, in custody. So they sent the marshals to us. He hadn't, he hadn't changed his name. He hadn't changed his address. He wasn't hiding at all. In fact, in the 13 years, he had, he had really extremely regretted what he had done. He felt really bad about it, a whole bunch of guilt, and he had done his absolute best to change his life. He went back to school. He became a master carpenter. He opened his own business. He had employees. He got married. He had kids. He had built his own house. He was just living his life, a totally different life. But that morning, he was taken to prison, and he, and he spent several months in prison before finally the state of Missouri decided, you know, it's, it's really no point of keeping this guy locked up. I mean, it was our grave mistake of this being in the situation in the first place, and obviously it's not going to serve him any purpose to stay uh, in prison. It's not going to rehabilitate him. He's already in a great place in his life, and so today Mike Anderson is free. But can you imagine what it would be like to carry that around for 13 years? To almost be like, kind of be on the run. Be looking over your back for 13 years. When are they going to find out? When is the other shoe going to drop? What's going to happen? Can you imagine wondering and waiting and just that sense of anxiety for 13 years? Can you imagine what it would have been like for his wife? She didn't know. She knew nothing about it when he had married her. He never told her. She's just on a business trip, and all of a sudden she gets a phone call. Yeah, your husband committed this crime 13 years ago, and you need to come get your kids. And I, I can imagine, like, I mean, the betrayal, the loss of trust, the confusion, the fear. I mean, how painful to go that, through that experience. And think about his kids. I mean, they didn't know any of this. They didn't know anything. All this from their past. I could imagine it throwing everything up in the air for them. And so, a lot of times when we talk about secrets, keeping secrets, we, we think about and focus on just how destructive they can be. We think about how they hold us back from becoming the person that God wants us to be, how they impact relationships, how they erode trust. In general, the way we talk about and think about secrets is that they're very damaging. And so it's like kind of odd then that we read in Matthew chapter 6 this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus far from telling us to avoid keeping secrets, actually says, yeah, it's actually good if you keep this whole area of your life entirely private. Don't let anyone else know. It's weird. It's weird to hear him say, yeah, in, in this area of life, concealment is the best for you. I mean, it's weird in the context of the rest of the Scriptures. I mean, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about, yeah, you need to be a light. You need to be salt in the world. We hear, we hear Paul talk to, to Timothy and say, you need to set an example for other people. We read in Peter, um, be ready to explain your faith, to give a reason for the hope that you have. I mean, we read all through the Scriptures all these examples about how we're supposed to be open and clear with other people, but here Jesus says, no, keep secrets, and your life will be better for it. So let's read the text. I think the kernel of the teaching is in verse 1. 
be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, he says, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So be careful not to practice these spiritual practices, these acts of personal piety. We sometimes call them spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, Bible study, generosity, worship, acts of service, food and entertainment choices, etc. Don't practice these spiritual disciplines in front of other people or for the benefit of other people to see. He says, keep them private. Keep them between you and God. Conceal it. Keep them hidden away. Then he goes on to, in, the, in the subsequent section to, to describe three different examples of what that looks like in that context, in that time and place, generosity, prayer, and fasting. And, and he describes the same dynamic for each one. He says, if you practice these disciplines, th- there's a reward that would have been available for you that you'll lose out if you're doing it to be seen by other people. And I think we could argue for a long time about what that reward is. What is he talking about? What kind of reward do we get from doing or could we get from practicing these disciplines? And, and that's not really my point this morning. I think at the very least we could agree that, that by practicing these things by prayer and Bible study, we can grow our connection with God, can grow our relationship with God. And, and if you're prone to agree with Dallas Willard about spiritual disciplines as I am, you might even go a step further and say that spiritual disciplines are actually a part of sanctification, that when we practice these things, we put ourselves in a position to be transformed from the inside out. But Jesus says, listen, if you do these things so that you can get seen by other people, all of that reward goes away. It's gone. It's not available. It's forfeited. But not only that, he says. Not only that, he says that if our motives are, are, are not really to connect first and commune with God, but, but rather to be seen by other people, um, that there's actually a reward that we'll get from that other side of it. He, he says in three different times, if you look in verse 2, verse 5, in verse 16, Jesus says, if you have your, your spiritual disciplines, your personal spirituality oriented towards other people, there is something that we get from that. There's a benefit. He says they will receive their reward in full. He says it several, three, three different times in this section. They will, they will receive their reward in full. So the first question is, what is Jesus getting at? What reward is he talking about? And, and I think in one sense, it's, it sounds sort of like a warning Jesus is giving, like, watch out, God will give you your reward. You'll, like, you have, you have it coming. If you, if you do this, God's going to get you. You're going to get a reward. But, like, I, I don't really know. Like, to me, the rest of it doesn't really seem like, I don't know, Jesus doesn't ever really seem vindictive. But, um, you know, it, to me, it seems more like he's just describing cause and effect. Like, there's, there would be something available here if you did it this way, but that's not, but there is this other thing available over here if you do it that way. It's not like he's describing this giant salvation issue that life is going to be over. It's not even so much of a condemnation. He's just describing cause and effect. If we practice these this way, this is what will happen. If we practice these this way, another thing will happen. 
Over the past uh, few years, my son is now four. My oldest son, Finn, is now almost four. He's about a week away from that. But I've just even over the years, long before he was born, I, I like to get Paige flowers from time to time. I know she likes them. It's fun. It's nice to bring that surprise home. And so ever since we, I, we've had Finn in our family, I've taken him along to try to, you know, teach him about generosity, to teach him about thinking of other people, to teach him the, the joy of giving gifts and thinking and looking after other people. And so so I've taken him along many times, and, and it's happens, we've done it enough that now whenever we walk through a grocery store or some other store that has flowers, or by someone's yard, or whatever, he wants to like take and pick or buy or whatever, I mean, every, almost every time, man, let's get those for mama, let's take those home, yeah, let's get them, let's pick them. So a couple of months ago, I was picking him up from my mom's house after she, she had watched him for the day, so I was there, it was late in the afternoon, and, and Finn insisted that we tear off some lilacs from her lilac bush. So he, you know, we went there and he, you know, he wanted to get them for mama. He wanted to take them home, these lilacs. So we went and, and grabbed them. And, and that day, Paige happened to be working at the hospital, so she didn't end up getting home until after he had to go to bed. But before he went to bed, he insisted these lilacs, they have to be laid on her table by her bed. So he just, you know, charged down there late, and it was so sweet. And, you know, Paige, she cried when she got home, and it was so cute. And it was just, it was really, really sweet. Now, now, what if I secretly got Paige flowers and took, took Finn with me to teach him about getting Paige, uh, Finn, uh, getting Paige flowers? What if I did all of that so that I could put that picture on Facebook? Like, what if that was the reason? Like, or what if I did all of that so that I could be talking about it here up front in this sermon this morning? Right? Like, what? Just what if? Like, what if my reason for doing those things was so that I could tell all of you about it and feel so good about myself? What if I was, what if I was doing it so that I could get something from you? I mean, what if, what if it was even deeper than that? What if I was looking for affirmation from you? What if I was dependent on you to give me that for my own sense of identity? Like I was working you so that I could get myself propped up because I need that in order to be okay with myself. What if I used loving my wife as a tool to manipulate all of you. Well, you might say that, well, it's not really love then, and you'd be accurate in that. You might even say, man, that sounds kind of pathological, like it's pretty, pretty far down the road. That's a lot of steps there, and you'd probably be right as well. Or, or what, if I, what if I did those things so that I could have more spiritual authority? What, what if I did those things so I could try to, like, consolidate power and build influence so that I could make my agenda get pushed through in, in the church world or in the world at large? And what if I was secretly trying to control you, and that's why I told you about giving my wife flowers? You probably have serious questions about my character. 
and rightly so. You'd probably trust me less. You'd probably want to be like less associated with me or connected with me. You'd probably have questions about the things in the past that I've done for you, about whether or not those were really about some other system or some other ploy that I had going on. It would throw a lot of things up in the air. I think Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6 is about motive, about what drives us to do the things that we do. And, and the reason that we do what we do fundamentally affects the very substance of that thing. When we manipulate people around us, there is real reward that comes to us. I mean, it feels good to be affirmed. Having, having influence in a community, that is useful. It really helps lots of different things, lots of different people. It's a, it's a helpful thing. When we give influence to someone who has, who has leadership potential or has great ideas, they can do great things for a community. There, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with receiving those things, but we, when, we, when we get them under false pretense, when we've manipulated our way to receive them, the underlying action has, has no meaning anymore. When I was a student at, at WAVA, some of my friends and I decided we wanted to do an all-night prayer vigil. We were going to pray for the school. We were going to pray for the city. We were going to stay up all night. It's like a Saturday night. We were going to stay up all night and pray. We were going to walk through town and walk to different people's houses. and be, We were going to pray for the school because we believed that God would act differently that year for us on behalf of our school if we did this thing. So we were, we were dedicated to it. We went out that night and we prayed and we got together and we sang and we worshiped. We had a car and we drove from house to house, different places, people Maybe we didn't get the cops called on us. Luckily, it was good. But, you know, we, we were really serious about it. And about, I don't know, 2 a.m. or so, I was feeling, I was still feeling serious about it, but I was feeling, I was feeling more serious about my friends that I was with because I was incredibly tired. And I was doing all I could to not fall asleep. Like, I was... I was really dedicated to this thing. I really wanted to do it. I really thought it mattered and it was meaningful. But about two or three in the morning, the only thing I could think about was, please don't go to sleep. Please don't fall asleep. Please don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. And completely in my mind is, what will these friends think? What are they going to do if I fall? Like, what are they going to say to me? What are they going to think of me if I fall asleep? They're not going to think I'm as good as them or I'm not as devoted to them. I was just like around and around and around and around. My head... And I think the, the, moment, the moment that happened, the, the prayer part lost meaning. It wasn't really about the prayer anymore. It was about impressing my buddies. So I, I think a good and beautiful gift, something that's essential to building relationship with God, building relationships with others, if we do it with an ulterior motive, it loses meaning or it even becomes a sign of betrayal. We can do things like Bible study or prayer or generosity or fasting or whatever, and even if we're doing it with a hope of, if we're doing it with a hope of manipulating or controlling someone, it's not going to benefit our connection with God whatsoever, even things that are good. I talked with a friend of mine about this dynamic, and he said it reminds him of of Jesus' two great commands, you know, love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you say, you know, if, we, if we're manipulating people with our acts of devotion to God, we really can't do either of those things. Both of those commands become impossible. Because people become not a lot more than pawns in our lives, and God is kind of an afterthought or just a tool to get what we want. We'll receive a reward, but we'll lose out on something else, and it'll cease to be love. I read an article about uh, this theater in New York. It's a, it's a portable theater. It's four feet by eight feet. And it features one actor and one audience member. It's called the Theater for One. So you go in there, it's about four, five, or ten minute um, perf art performance, and it's one actor and one audience member. You just go in, you take your turn, and you're in there. And, and the article interviewed some of the people that had, had taken part in this, and, and consistently people said, man, it was so intimate. It was so personal to be in that. It was incredibly intense because you're right there, and this person is pouring out their soul and acting, and man, it was so intimate. We felt so connected. And I think when we're practicing our spirituality for other people to be seen by crowds, it's impossible for it to not be inauthentic. It doesn't benefit our relationship with God, and in fact, it breaks relationships with other people as well. But when we practice those things with, uh, for an audience of one, as we sometimes say, for God alone, when we do them to build our connection with Him alone, the consequence is intimacy. The consequence is great intimacy. And I think that that's the case both with God and with other people around us. And so almost ironically in this case, keeping secrets, keeping clear bounds of privacy in our lives actually builds intimacy rather than destroys it. It's the very opposite of how we see it at work in many other ways. So here's the question this morning as we close. You know, as, as you think about your spiritual life, as you think about how and when you pray and study, and give, serve, and fast, as you think about church attendance and Sabbath keeping and what you wear or don't wear or what you eat and don't eat or what you watch and listen to or don't, as you think about habits of, of confession, habits of worship, habits of forgiveness, or all the other things that we do to connect and grow our relationship with God, as you think about those things, what motivates you? What drives you? What's going on underneath? And I, and I think if, if, as you think about these things, as you process them, if, if there's a little twinge of something, whether it's a little bit of fear, maybe a touch of sadness for how it's been done in the past, maybe some pain, maybe guilt, that, that might be an indicator. Yeah, there's, there may be something more going on there. 
I may be getting a different reward in my connection with God. I want to close this morning with a paragraph this, of, of the very last section of Matthew chapter 6. Well, it's the uh, paragraph that, that ends this section. It starts with verse 19. And I think sometimes it's taught all alone by itself, but I think in the context of this teaching, it illuminates it. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, rewards on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure, rewards in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May it be so.